Our Father, I thank you for this day and for this time when uh, we can gather together to consider your attributes. I pray that uh, in this time we will give them due consideration and that they will cause us to be uh, mindful of who you are as we go to worship you today. Please be with us. Um, Be with me. Cause me to speak truth about who you are and uh, be with all of us who are, are listening that these words might uh, move within their hearts so that uh, they they will also come to know you better for who you are and worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last Sunday we uh, considered the holiness of God. I'd intended to cover both holiness and justice, but... Uh, we had such a good discussion on holiness and a nice supplemental lesson on it from Hal that we ended up uh, just getting through our discussion of God's holiness. So we're pushing uh, our um, consideration of the justice of God back to today as well as the goodness and truth of God. Um, sadly, last week I realized right at the end of our lesson that I'd forgotten to hit record, so the audio is not available, but I'll be happy to share my notes uh, from last week if anyone is interested in reviewing them. Uh, but today we will be finishing out our consideration of question seven of the catechism, looking at the justice, goodness, and truth of God, the final three of the communicable attributes. And then starting next week, we'll cover uh, questions eight and nine on the uh, unity and trinity of God. So just to remind ourselves once more of what the attributes of God are, let's review question seven together as we've been doing. What is God? God is the spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Okay, so God's justice is closely related to his holiness. Uh, and his justice is affirmed many times in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his word is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Um, Job 37.23 says, The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Psalm 89.14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And Revelation 15, 3 and 4 says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, uh, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Even the uh, mighty earthly king Nebuchadnezzar had to affirm the perfect justice of God. In Daniel three, uh, sorry, Daniel four thirty-seven. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. Now the word justice is often used in Scripture as synonymous with righteousness. I think that we often distinguish them somewhat, speaking of justice in particular as righteousness in judgment. Abraham 
pleads God's justice in his intercession for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And then God goes and proves his justice. Knowing that the people of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah truly are guilty, he still goes down to those cities in order to demonstrate that he has actually borne witness to their wickedness before he executes judgment upon them. And then uh, Solomon affirms God's justice in Proverbs twenty four twelve. He says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Now, um, last week, again, we affirmed the holiness of God. Um, and the perfect holiness of God is the cause of his justice. And so, because he is holy, he cannot be anything other than perfectly just. Now, speaking of the Son of God, the psalmist says in Psalm 45, 7, which is quoted in Hebrews 1, 9, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, the Son of God, because he is God, is just uh, just as God is. Um, of course, we'll, we'll look more at that when we consider the doctrine of the Trinity in a couple of weeks. Now, human governments are often unjust, and this is because they're made up of men, and wicked men pervert justice. Um, Psalm 94, 20 and 21 says, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. This is something throughout history we see Wicked uh, world leaders, national leaders condemn the righteous and often protect the unrighteous because the governments themselves are unrighteous. But God's justice is unassailable. No one can argue against God's justice. Uh, Isaiah twenty-eight seventeen, And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. In Romans 9.20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Um, another is Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Even if we can't figure out the reason uh, for some of God's judgments, we must agree that his judgments are right. But he's also just in rewarding those who are righteous. Psalm 58, 10 and 11 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And Hebrews six ten. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God is just in punishing the wicked, but he also is just in rewarding the righteous. Um, he has given a law. He's revealed it to everyone. Uh, Romans two fourteen to 16 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to, himself, to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Fact of the matter is, even those who haven't received the scriptures demonstrate a knowledge of the law of God by the fact that they agree with its judgments and the fact that they act in accordance with it by nature in many ways. This is something we spent a whole lesson on uh, two years ago looking at the law of God. And so because of this, the sins of all people are justly punished by God because everyone has demonstrated that they know the law of God that they are breaking. Now, shortly before that passage in uh, verses uh, 6 to 11, Paul gives a pretty thorough affirmation of God's justice. It says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. As we affirmed uh, according, uh, concerning the wisdom of God a couple of weeks ago, the way that God has devised for the redemption of sinners proves his justice. God doesn't forgive sinners without satisfaction being made for their sins. Uh, Romans three twenty one to 26 affirms this, um, that God proves his justice by sending his son in human flesh to be that satisfaction for our sins. He says that it's so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, sometimes you'll hear people questioning the justice of God in the fact that he allows evil to persist uh, and even allows evil people to prosper. But we've got to remember, evil can only exist as far as it serves the purposes of God. Uh, the evil works of Joseph's brothers ended up saving his family and possibly millions of others from starvation. And then the evil works of the Jews and the Romans brought about the salvation of sinners in crucifying Christ. So God will be glorified, which is his highest end, in the defeat of Satan and the punishment of the wicked. But he often uses the works of the wicked to bring that about. Also, uh, when wicked people do prosper, it only increases God's wrath against them. In Revelation two nineteen to 21, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So the fact that God allows an evil person to persist in evil and continue enjoying the things of this world will come back to them in greater judgment. Um, The fact that she had the opportunity to repent, but refused to do so. And then also, God benefits us often through the suffering of his people. 
So First Peter uh, 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our afflictions in this world actually refine and purify our faith to result ultimately in our greater glory and honor. Now, just as God's holiness should cause us to be holy, his justice should also cause us to be just. Uh, remember the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We should always seek to ask uh, to act justly towards other people because not only God has acted uh, justly towards everyone, but because we would desire that people would act justly toward us. But we need to know that because God is just, that does mean that there will be a day of judgment and that the wicked will not escape from this judgment. And so let that... Uh, for one thing, be a cause for us to pity those who do not believe the gospel and to desire that they would. And so that can be a motivation for us to press upon them that need. Um, But for those who have repented and believe the gospel, the justice of God is a comforting thing. And this is because we know that all of our enemies will be subdued and defeated. And we know that our sins have been propitiated by Christ. Um, and that we are counted righteous before the perfectly just judge because of the righteousness of Christ. First uh, John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins daily, we can rest on the righteousness of Christ and know that God's justice will not come upon us in judgment because that righteousness belongs to us. Um, Anyone want to say anything further, ask any questions, talk about the justice of God? Um, That one uh, I had probably more to say on than than most of the other ones, but it's it's a very important thing for us to consider. But uh, hopefully we'll have enough time to get through everything else that I have for today. So uh, moving on from God's justice, I want to look next at the goodness of God. And often when we think of goodness, we tend, uh, I think, to equate it with holiness and justice. So, for example, when we say that God is good and that man is not, we usually mean by that that God is holy and just while man is profane and sinful. And scripture does often use the word good in this way. So uh, an example is when Jesus tells the rich young ruler that no one is good but God alone. And this is in contrast to sinful man of whom scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. However, from reading the uh, period literature from around the time that these catechisms were written, um, I get the impression that the authors of the catechisms use the word goodness here mainly to refer to the love and mercy of God. Um, In fact, at this point in Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, which are his sermons through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, 
the sermon on this portion of this question is titled The Mercy of God Instead of the Goodness of God. And he goes on explaining how they, in his view, are the same thing. At one time, I actually read an article. Someone was criticizing the Shorter Catechism for not mentioning the love of God in its list of attributes in this question. And at first, I was curious about this myself, but I did quickly come to realize that um, that the Catechism does mention the love of God. It's just that they treat of it under this heading of goodness. Um, so, again, this is something that Scripture affirms a lot. Uh, Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and do good. So we have here an affirmation first of God's essential goodness, that he is good. And then we have an affirmation of his goodness toward his creatures. It says he does good. God affirmed his own goodness when Moses asked him to show him his glory. Uh, God responded in Exodus thirty three nineteen. It says, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then when his glory was passing before Moses, uh, he further expressed his goodness in Exodus 34, 6. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So while he, he concludes this passage with an affirmation of his justice against sinners, he begins and spends most of his time in that passage uh, speaking of his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, and his forgiveness, all of which are, are comprehended under this heading of goodness. And God certainly delights in showing mercy. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Um, scripture is so full of statements about God's mercy that we could have easily just filled up a whole Sunday school session reading them. Uh, but I'll just give a few more. Actually, uh, if you all want to go look some of these up, uh, I think we have time for that, hopefully. Um, if someone wants to look at Psalm 86.5 and then someone else, Psalm 103.17. Then Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, um, or just those three. We'll just do those three. So 86. Psalm 86, 5, first of all. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. All right. Uh, Psalm 103, 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to his children's, to, to children's children. All right, and then Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Mm -hmm. For God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 
We won't read all of this, but in Psalm 136, the statement, his steadfast love endures forever is repeated, I think, 26 times. Um, so we could call that the the goodness chapter or the steadfast love chapter. I know we've already got the love chapter in Hebrews, but um, or not Hebrews, First uh, Corinthians. Um, but... Uh, Yes, Scripture is full of affirmations of God's goodness and mercy and or steadfast love. These are all kind of the same thing. Um, and though God's wrath is often kindled by sinful men, his mercy, his mercy towards his people is certain. Uh, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Israel had disobeyed God and had been cast off into exile, but Jeremiah knows that God is and will always be merciful toward his covenant people, and he will not allow their punishment to be permanent. Uh, In fact, God's wrath against Judah is called a strange deed and an alien work in Isaiah 28, 21. It says, for the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and his work, alien is his work. Talking about the judgment against Judah. And even the reprobate experienced God's goodness in having his wrath against them delayed. The Noahic covenant guaranteed that God would never again send such a global disaster as the flood to wipe out life on the earth. And Revelation 4.3 even says that God appeared on his throne uh, with a rainbow, which is a token of his mercy according to that covenant, around his throne. And uh, even as today, many people have turned that symbol into an emblem of uh, rebellion, but with a missing color. They fail to see that it is the very mercy of God which is preserving them for now. Um, And remember, though, that mercy is by definition undeserved. If we ever come to get the idea in our heads that God owes us mercy for any reason, then we're no longer calling him merciful. Um, God says of the rebellious Israelites in Hosea 14.4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. It wasn't the Israelites that did anything to turn God back to them. It was entirely his choice to put aside his wrath and to draw the people back to himself. And all of this was out of his undeserved kindness. Titus 3.5, I think I quoted uh, recently. I don't remember which week says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Um, And because of this, when we sin, we should always feel confident going to God in prayer because he's always ready to forgive us. Showing mercy to those who come to him and ask, uh, ask for his mercy is what he delights in. Um, Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God, is, he delights in showing mercy to all who would come to him. 
But we must not abuse God's mercy. We must not be like the people that Jude mentions in Jude 4 when it speaks of those who uh, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so we must not be like them. Paul warns about this in Romans 2, 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we must not let God's goodness cause us to become comfortable in our sin, but rather we should let it cause us to be confident in going to him for forgiveness when we sin. Now, if we've been shown mercy from God, we must also show mercy to others. Uh, we've got to remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. That's uh, Matthew eighteen twenty-one to 35. If you remember, the servant had been forgiven a very great debt by his master, but then he refused uh, to forgive his own debtor in return. When his master heard about it, he threw him in prison. Um, remember, one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So if, if we're not willing to forgive others, then we cannot rightly trust that we have been forgiven by God. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about the goodness and mercy of God. Um, anyone else uh, have something you want to add? Or anything? All right. So then um, we'll continue on to look at the final attribute for us to consider today, which is the truth of God. Um, now, Scripture often speaks of God's truth as his faithfulness. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it's the same Hebrew word that's translated both as truth and faithfulness. Um, so, you know, when I quote passages, they may mention faithfulness. Understand that that, that could mean truth just as well. Um, Deuteronomy 34, or 32 verse 4 says, A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then uh, Psalm 57.10 affirms the faithfulness of God right alongside his goodness or steadfast love. It says, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Now this means, for one thing, that God will always keep his covenant promises. 1 Kings 8.56 says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. And unlike we who often make promises that we are unable to keep, God is all powerful and so he will never be unable to do what he has said that he will do. Um, Paul says that uh, Abraham understood this. Romans 4.21 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And then Hebrews 11.19 says uh, of Abraham again that he considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. Um, and then uh, another affirmation we have of this is 1 Samuel 15.29. It says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So God will never lie. <clears throat> uh, Moses even appealed to God's truthfulness in pleading for the people after they had made the golden calf. 
It says in Exodus 32, uh, verses 13 and 14, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, we we spoke of this uh, some earlier when we were considering the immutability of God. He does sometimes threaten judgment against his people, but these threats are always meant to bring them to repentance. If he is covenant to despair you of his wrath, he will do it. He will never break his promises. And so since God is true and faithful, that means that we also need to be true and faithful. Uh, Remember, as we've talked about these being communicable attributes, these are the attributes of God which are reflected in creatures. uh, And in particular, those of us who are God's people, we should seek to reflect God's image by displaying these uh, communicable attributes in our own limited human ways. Um, David says in Psalm 15, 1 and 2, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Being truthful is one of the characteristics of those who will inherit eternal life and will be with God. Um, when Paul is giving instruction to the Ephesians on how to live the Christian life in Ephesians 4.25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And Jesus tells us that liars are of the devil. Uh, when he's speaking to those who denied him, in John 8.44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So liars will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 22.15 says, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. God's people are to be recognized by our truthfulness. Um, in fact, Jesus said of uh, the apostle Nathaniel, or the soon-to-be apostle Nathaniel, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Um, because uh, being a true Israelite, one of the characteristics is being a truthful person. And so it's because God is true that we're able to be confident in God's promises of salvation. If he were a God who broke covenants, then we would never be able to be sure that he won't break his promises to us. Um, Timothy affirms this, Second Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He will be true to what he has said. First um, John five ten, John says, "Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son." So God is not a liar. He will save all who will go to Him for salvation, because He has promised to do so. But he's also true in His threats of judgment against the wicked and those who do not repent. 
can be sure that they will be condemned in accordance with the word that God has threatened. Um, Jeremiah 10.10 says, uh, it calls God the true God and the living God. And we often like to say that uh, when we are worshiping, we are worshiping the true and living God. And so as we're preparing to go into worship, let's worship God for all of these attributes that we've considered um, today for his, his justice, his goodness, and his truthfulness, uh, as well as all the others we've looked at in previous weeks. And for all the reasons that we have considered and this, all of God's attributes, they are, well, they are his essence and they are the reason why he is worthy of all of our worship. Um, and because of the truthfulness of God and the mercy of God, we can know that he will keep his promise to save us if we go to him for forgiveness because he delights to forgive those all who turn to him uh, and seek him for forgiveness. Um, so I think with that uh, concluded what I have prepared for you all this morning. Um, anyone want to just uh, say any more or ask any further questions about any of these three attributes today? And if not, um, Adam, will you pose us in prayer? Father God, I want to thank you for having this time together where we can gather in fellowship and to grow in your, knowing your word. Thank you for revealing these truths unto us, the truths that you decided to reveal. Thank you for showing us how to have these communicable attributes as uh, you have, that we can have consistent fellowship with you and with the other saints, and that we can show the unbelievers what it's like to live under righteousness. I pray that uh, as we continue to go forward today in this Lord's Day, that we can worship in spirit and truth, that we will have fellowship with one another with the saints, that is rejoiceful and edifying to each of our souls. And I pray that as we go out for the rest of the day, that you will be the centerpiece of our minds. I pray all of these things in Christ's name.